Good morning, early birds. You have hooked The Worm, a podcast from Yellowstone Public Radio News and our colleagues at Montana Public Radio. I'm your host, Orlinda Worthington. Today is Tuesday, February 20th. Another attempt to clean up asphalt from the Yellowstone River begins. A plan to outsource training in the Department of Health could close the doors for other businesses. And a largely unknown side of Bozeman's history revealed in a new exhibit. We begin this morning with the state of Montana filing its appeal to the Supreme Court over a youth-led climate case. Montana Public Radio's Ellis Julin has more. The appeal in the Held versus Montana case comes after a district court ruled in favor of the 16 youth plaintiffs last summer. The court found that the state's energy policies violated the plaintiff's constitutional right to a healthy environment. In January, the Montana Supreme Court ordered state regulators to consider climate change as part of their permitting decisions while the appeal plays out. The state reiterated its argument that Montana is not singularly responsible for planet-warming greenhouse gas emissions, so Montana alone cannot remedy the young plaintiff's harm. The appeal also argues Montana's Environmental Policy Act doesn't give state agencies the power to address climate change or how it's harming young people. The plaintiffs now have until mid-March to submit a response to the state's opening brief. In Missoula, I'm Ellis Julin. An oil and gas developer wants to build new carbon dioxide storage in southeastern Montana. Yellowstone Public Radio's Kayla DeRoche reports. The U.S. Bureau of Land Management opened a public comment period Friday for a carbon sequestration project proposed for Carter County along the Montana-South Dakota border. Denbury requests more than 100,000 acres of BLM-owned underground real estate to store carbon from its 105-mile pipeline, which connects a Montana oil field and a facility where it processes carbon into oil. ExxonMobil acquired Denbury in November, several years after one of Denbury's carbon dioxide pipelines ruptured in rural Mississippi and caused more than 40 hospitalizations. Companies like ExxonMobil have jumped on carbon capture and storage technology in recent years as an approach to cutting emissions. But dissenters say it might not live up to its hype as a climate solution. NPR reported energy analysts say many carbon capture projects underperformed on emissions reduction targets and were over budget. Safety advocates also voice concern and say gaps remain in federal regulations. Neither the BLM nor Denbury were able to provide interviews by deadline. BLM is holding an informational meeting on the proposed sequestration project on March 5th in Ekalaka. The comment period ends on March 18th. In Billings, I'm Kayla DeRoche. On Friday, phase two of a plan began to clean up the Yellowstone River downstream of a Montana rail link derailment that spilled thousands of pounds of oil-based asphalt material into the Yellowstone River last summer in Stillwater County. The plan is to conduct an assessment and cleanup of the riverbank this winter and early spring, conditions allowing. Another cleanup is also slated for this summer. So far, cleanup crews say they have recovered more than an estimated 236,000 pounds of asphalt. Authorities will hold a public meeting on the cleanup February 29th in Columbus and online. A Montana district court judge struck down a proposed subdivision in Broadwater County, claiming there is not enough water to support the development. Montana Public Radio's Najifa Farhat has more details on the ruling. Judge Michael McMohan issued the ruling this week. He said Broadwater County and the Montana Department of Natural Resources and Conservation approved a subdivision without considering the impact on groundwater. 
He said DNRC for years has approved developments without adequately evaluating water availability. Guy Alcenzer is the executive director of Upper Missouri Waterkeeper and attorney for the plaintiffs. You can't avoid the question of whether or not you have an adequate water supply for a new subdivision. If you don't have a legal right to water, then you simply can't build. DNRC says it's reviewing the ruling. In Missoula, I'm Najifa Farhat. Montana has one of the highest rates of people experiencing long COVID symptoms. That's according to a federal health survey. Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton has details. The Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention used one of its annual surveys to ask adults about whether they had experienced COVID symptoms 30 or more days after testing positive. Symptoms lasting that long are referred to as long COVID. CDC epidemiologist Nicole Ford says nearly 6.5% of U.S. adults reported experiencing long COVID. Montana was among the states with the highest percent of adults reporting ever experiencing long COVID at just under 10 percent. That's the second highest rate nationwide. Ford found the condition is most common in the West, Midwest, and the South. She says this data can help health officials and policymakers know the scope of the issue and provide resources for people who need treatment. In Columbia Falls, I'm Aaron Bolton. Aaron also discovered that most nursing home staff and residents in Montana are not up to date on their COVID vaccines. The Kaiser Family Foundation, a nonprofit health policy research group, found that 56% of nursing home residents in Montana haven't gotten the most recent shot. The rate skyrockets to 82% for staff. Montana's updated vaccination rate for both residents and staff sits in the middle of the pack nationwide. KFF says despite people having immunity to COVID through previous vaccines or infections, keeping up to date on vaccines lowers their risk for severe complications or death. Nursing home residents account for a third of all COVID-related deaths in the U.S. Nearly 9 out of 10 residents and staff nationwide took the initial round of vaccines during the height of the pandemic, thanks in part to a massive federal campaign. KFF says without federal programs, vaccination rates in nursing homes may continue to drop. In Columbia Falls, I'm Aaron Bolton. Montana may be known for its pristine wild places and picturesque views, but its history isn't all necessarily pretty. Yellowstone Public Radio's Sarah Brown reports on a new exhibit that reveals a seamier side of Bozeman. The exhibit examines the hidden layers of Bozeman's restricted district, home to brothels, saloons, and opium dens from the 1870s until 1918. At the time, the newly founded town was an agricultural hub for mining camps like Bannock, Virginia City, and Helena that propagated with the discovery of gold in the early 1860s. Crystal Alegria is the executive director of the Extreme History Project, the nonprofit behind the exhibit. Our mission is to make history relevant, and our tagline is, history isn't pretty. Located in a former 19th century brothel, the exhibit focuses on the lives of two district madams, Libby Hayes and Lizzie Woods. Hayes lived and worked out of the building housing the exhibit, Woods from a house nearby. The money and shred of agency they enjoyed almost certainly came with a steep social cost. Most red-light workers were driven by destitution and desperation. There was also a lot of violence in these districts, Violence towards the women from their customers, but also violence between themselves. There was also a lot of drug use and alcohol abuse. A lot of the women we see dying very young of overdose. 
A lot of women commit suicide. Using information gleaned from deed and probate records, census data, and newspapers, the exhibit shows documents, photographs, and artifacts from the era. Taken together, the PG exhibit shows how the women navigated the legalities, social stigmas, and moralities of the day. The exhibit opened earlier this month and will run through the summer. Tickets and more information can be found on the Extreme History Project website. In Billings, I'm Sarah Brown. State health officials are negotiating a contract to run job training services for low-income Montanans with a Virginia-based company. Montana Public Radio's John Hooks reports local nonprofits who currently provide those services are worried they will have to close their doors. Low-income Montanans who receive financial assistance, like the SNAP program, are required to enter job training programs. For decades, those programs have been administered by a cooperative of more than a dozen local nonprofits around the state. Dakota Stormo sits on the board of Career Futures in Butte, which offers that job training. Before working with the nonprofit, he was 20 years old, without a job, and with a six-month-old child to take care of. Begrudgingly, I accepted the fact that I needed help and sought the assistance of the Department of Health and Human Services. Any individual who has had the need to be on state assistance can say that it is not an easy task. Stormo says the job training he received was essential to him finding stable employment and moving off state assistance. The training and guidance I received at Career Futures taught me skills that I still use to this day. Everything from keeping a budget, how to interview properly, workplace etiquette, time management, and professionalism. Stormo joined a group of Democratic state lawmakers this week at a press conference criticizing the state's decision to change how the job training program is administered. Last fall, Montana's Department of Public Health and Human Services announced it was looking to collapse and consolidate the program under one provider who could create a hybrid virtual and physical program across the state. In January, the department announced its intent to give the new contract to Maximus, a for-profit government services contractor based in Virginia. State Health Department Director Charlie Brereton says the goal for the new contract is to reinvigorate the services offered by creating a performance-based model which pays bonuses to Maximus when clients reach certain milestones, like obtaining a GED. But critics say the old model works fine. And they worry the new performance model, focused on outcomes, will lessen care and force local providers, particularly in rural communities, to shut their doors. State Representative Mary Caffaro, a Democrat from Helena, was also a client for job training when she was a single mother of four fleeing an unsafe situation with an ex-husband. She's skeptical of offering these services virtually. A computer system simply does not cut it. With people like me, We need someone across the table talking to us face-to-face. DPHHS says its new program is intended to improve efficiency and meet clients where they are, but didn't say how virtual services would be accessed by low-income Montanans without home internet or cell phone access. The department says the project proposal requires Maximus to subcontract with existing local providers as needed. Providers in Butte, Helena, and Missoula say they're unclear what that means. If a subcontract offer doesn't arrive, many providers say they'll be forced to close. DPHHS said negotiations were ongoing and that Maximus would work with local providers on a transition plan before taking over services on July 1st. Maximus did not immediately respond to a request for comment. In Butte, 
I'm John Hooks. That is the worm for Tuesday. You early birds, be sure to join us on Wednesday for another edition of The Worm. The Worm is a production of Yellowstone Public Radio. Theme music composed and recorded by Zach Jones at Rapscallion Recording. Metal art call captured by Jay McGowan for the Macaulay Library. More information about The Worm is available at ypradio.org.